Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you, the uh, the championship games are this weekend of football. And you know, I'm a huge Eagles fan, so it's been a crazy week because we're getting a new coach and everything's getting rehauled. But I got to tell you, this is a one year where I, I want any team to win as long as it's not the Patriots. And, and honestly, because I just, I don't like the Patriots. They always win. And I was thinking, you know, I'd love to see Denver because you'd love to see Peyton Manning win. was probably his last year. But then I saw, I wasn't a big Cam Newton fan, and I saw Cam Newton, what he does with the kids and the balls and giving them to him, and it's just amazing. So it's going to be interesting. But just, you know, I'll be in a bad mood if it's, it's New England in the Super Bowl again because last time I had a Super Bowl was the Giants against the Patriots. I, I had a Super Bowl party, and I actually, I actually rooted for the Giants, which as an Eagles fan is just dead to you. I mean, it's just crazy. So anyway, we have a great show today. We have, we have a guy who's a football fan, too, and a very prolific writer. His name is uh, Sean Ryan. How you doing, Sean? I'm well, thank you. So you're a Bears fan. Yeah, I'm from uh, Rockford, Illinois, so I grew up a Bears fan. Uh, although, growing up, I was right near the Wisconsin border, so we had some hated Packer fans who lived in the area as well. And, uh, you know, it's it's been, a, it's been a ride to be a Bears fan over the last 20 years. It hasn't always been easy, but... Well, you've won. You won something, so that's good. You I, well, it goes back to 1985, so th- we're we're essentially exactly at the 30 year anniversary right now of of the Bears title, which was pretty spectacular. Uh, but haven't really won anything since then. Now you grew up in Chicago, and I read that as a kid you loved 70 sitcoms. Yes. Now, what were some of the sitcoms you were watching, and what what enthralled you with them? What made you sit there and go, God, I love this? Uh, to me, you know, Rockford, Illinois was a kind of isolated place to, to grow up in. Uh, yeah, I didn't really travel to big cities very much as a kid, uh, occasionally into Chicago, um, you know, Milwaukee, Madison, that was about the extent of it. And so those sitcoms really opened the world to me, uh, you know, all in the family and the Jeffersons and good times really opened my eyes towards, uh, New York and, and then, you know, back then, those shows were really the ones that were um, attacking a lot of the social customs and mores of the time. Shows like One Day at a Time, you know, Mary Tyler Moore show, um, you know, had you know looked at women differently than, than a lot of things. And then, you know, uh, I just wasn't I wasn't one of these kids that grew up near an art house movie theater. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I, I I always joke, you know, that I wasn't going to see, you know, sort of mean streets after school, uh, you know. Fourth at, grade at, class trip. <laughs> you know, there was a there was a movie complex uh, about a mile away from my house that, that played whatever the hits were. And, and so I found TV to be a little bit more uh, subversive than the movies I was seeing. Not that there weren't subversive movies out there. They just didn't make their way to my neighborhood. Uh, so there was just something that always spoke to me about television. Now, as a kid, did you sit? I mean, when did you decide that you would? When, has been when did you decide that you were going to pursue this? I mean, it's something that you know, writing. I mean, as a kid, we watch TV and we don't think, oh, you know, we're going to go write a sitcom or write TV. And what were you writing as a kid, or when did that start? No, writing? in fact, I hated writing as a kid. Um, I was a math student much more than an English essay writing student. Uh, hate, I hated writing essays. Anytime I had to put a pen to paper, um, I, I just wasn't comfortable. I didn't like it. I was much more comfortable with numbers. Uh, and it really wasn't until college uh, when I was dabbling in some theater classes uh, and in one of those theater classes at the end of my freshman year, uh, w- our assignment was to write a five-minute scene and use other people in the class to, to act that scene out. We'd have to direct it with other people. So I acted in some people's scenes, and I'd written this five-minute scene that I thought was funny, that I thought no one would really understand. It was like a little inside joke sort of you know, sketch scene that my friends and I would understand, but no one else would get. <laughs> Um, and we put that on, and I was literally walking out the door of my classroom when uh, the professor, a guy by the name of Doug Anderson, who was a produced playwright himself, um, pulled me aside and said, Sean, I really liked your scene. Um, I, I think you actually have some talent for this, and I'm teaching a playwriting class next uh, year, and I really think you should take it. And, and that moment really changed my life because I hadn't given any thought at all. Um, you know, I was 18 years old at this point. I uh, hadn't given any thought at all to writing, and and to have a professor kind of stick his neck out for you and say that you might have some talent in something was um, um, was really nice. So I took that playwriting class next year. I wrote my first play. Um, he selected that one along with four or five others to produce the second semester. So um, you know, in, in a big student production. So I got to see my play, you know, staged, and and, and people actually watch it and. 
And at that point, I became hooked. and Ended up changing my major. Started writing plays. What was your major? I was an economics major. Okay, God, that's that's so funny. So I became a joint economics theater major. I'd taken enough economic economics classes by the time I fell in love with playwriting that that it would have been stupid to abandon it as a major. But right. uh, but I but I definitely uh, neglected it my last two years. I took a lot more theater classes than economics classes my last two years. How did you choose your college? Because you, you you grew up in near Chicago, where mm-hmm. it's called, and and you went to Vermont, which is yeah. so cold. I mean, was it just? I mean, because it's a it's a cold area. Yeah, well, Rockford's cold as well, so it wasn't something I was intimidated by. I knew I wanted to get away. Just There was some wanderlust in me. Uh, I had been an athlete growing up. I was a very competitive soccer and hockey player, and I had done some traveling um, with those sports. Uh, there was just something about the East Coast that, that spoke to me, so I looked at a few schools there. Uh, when I went to visit Middlebury, it was in November. This would have been November of uh, 83, and uh, there we had arrived like a day my mother and i had arrived a day after this huge snowstorm um and there was just something about the snow on that campus it, uh, i don't remember it but my, my mother claims that within five minutes of being on that campus i just turned to her and said this is where i'm going to go um i foolishly didn't worry about whether i would get in yeah. <laughs> or not and i fortunately was able to later on um but there was just something about the community there. There was something about the people. Um, it's a very insulated school. It's certainly not a school that's for everyone. Um, it's got a great academic reputation, but it's very isolated compared to a lot of other schools. But uh, that was something that I actually uh, liked about it. And um, and it's very conducive to, to work and to playwriting. It was very easy on uh, very, very cold nights to kind of sit inside and, and, and write scenes. So now you, you write, you're writing these plays, and now... As you're getting close to graduation, what are your plans? I mean, because I know I know you entered the norm the contest that you won, but what were your plans? Were you going to sit there and go to Hollywood, New York, or did you not not sure what you? I wasn't. Do? I wasn't sure. I knew I wanted to do something in writing. Um, I didn't know what to do about it. This is pre-internet days when you can kind of look up opportunities. Uh, so I kind of haphazardly applied to a couple of. Uh, grad schools i remember applying uh to yale drama school um you know to focus on playwriting and getting rejected um i remember applying to southern illinois university um, which had a good writing program and i think i may have gotten in i don't even remember now um but uh you know i I was a scholarship kid so i had student loans and stuff at the end of college i had to you know figure out something pretty quick in terms of making some money and i also a lot of i was graduating a little bit ahead of a lot of my friends and i wasn't quite so ready to leave uh the college bubble even when i graduated so i kind of found a an in-between way which is um I ended up getting a job at a radio station in uh, Burlington, Vermont, um, writing ads um, for them. It was about 45 minutes from campus, and so I would work Monday through Friday writing ads, and then on Friday night I would drive uh, back down to Middlebury and kind of hang out with my friends for the weekend and drive back. So I ended up doing that for about seven, eight months, um, uh, at which point you mentioned a, a contest that I had won, um, and it was, at, it was at that moment, about seven, eight months after I... Uh, started working at the radio station that, that I won this playwriting contest and and uh, part of the award was to take me to uh, the Shenandoah Playwrights Retreat in Virginia um, to to workshop a play and then the other part was to come to Los Angeles and spend two weeks in the writer's room of a of a sitcom um, and so I was like well that sounds pretty great I think that's what I'm gonna do <laughs> so I left the radio station and you know moved to Los Angeles when I was uh, 23 years so old. so you just moved you said you know what this is you knew, you knew something would come of this. Well, the award came with an opportunity to to write a script and get get paid. Um, I think back then it was I don't know, was maybe eighteen thousand dollars or something, which seemed like all the money in the world to me. So yeah, it, this was this was what I wanted to do. I was getting a little bit of a foot in the door. Um, so I, you know, people because there are always people who you know when they meet me, people who are trying to be writers or when I go to speak places. Um, you know, people always want to know kind of, well, how, how you made it, how, how it worked for you. And of course, I've literally never heard any two people's stories be the same. There's, there's no one way to kind of quote unquote make it. Mine was very, very unusual. I'd, I'd won this uh, playwriting award. It was, was for best comedy play in the country um, for, for colleges. Um, and, and so now I'm in Los Angeles. Literally my second day ever in Los Angeles, I was on the Sunset Gower lot. 
uh, in the writer's room of My Two Dads, um, observing Bob Meyer was running the show. Chuck Lorre was one of the writers on the show. Chuck was one of the very first people I met in this town. And I got to just watch for two weeks um, as they went about writing that show and, and putting on that show. Um, and I thought, well, gee, I've kind of made it. This is pretty easy. And then, and then when that ended, I, um, you know, I, I, I didn't get any writing work or get paid for four and a, four and a half years after that. What were you doing at that time? Just tussling? Or well, just... I, I had banked enough money because they did pay me for the script uh, that they ultimately didn't use. And then I was able to kind of sell them a story idea that they did use. So between those two paychecks, you know, it gave me about 25 grand or something. And essentially I just, you know, lazily kind of lived off that for a year um, waiting for my big break to come, uh, which of course it didn't come. And, uh, and so my money was running out after a year. I was like, Oh God, I got to do something. And I, I managed to get a job answering phones in a law firm from 5am to 11am every weekday, which is where I experienced my first earthquake. Cause as a Midwestern kid, you, you never experience earthquakes. And I was on the 34th floor of this high rise in downtown LA at like 5:30 in the morning. The only person in the in the phone room because this was an international company, so they had to have somebody answering phones 24 hours a day there um, because they had offices all over the world. And so I'm I'm alone in this windowless room when the building just starts to like sway. I didn't know that buildings that the high rises were built to sway with earthquakes, so I could feel myself like moving like 20, 30 feet. I I was sure it was instant death. I was just terrified. Um, but I did that for six or nine months and then, and then voicemail came into vogue. And so I got laid off and got like three months severance pay. So that was cool to get paid, not to answer phones. And then I, uh, I found a job that worked well for me, which was I, I tutored, uh, kids for the math portion of the SATs. Um, I'd always been a good math student, you know, been good math SAT guy and had always liked working with kids. And I found this company that, I did a lot of one-on-one tutoring uh, with the kids. But the great part about it was I was able to make my own schedule. So, you know, I would meet with the kids whenever we agreed, and I would, you know, I'd try to shove it all into the same three or four days a week, and then I'd use the other days of the week to write spec scripts. And I ended up writing like 16 or 17 spec scripts during that period. This is from 1990 until halfway through 1995 um and and i just i think became a, a better writer i'd always been a clever writer from the moment i first started writing but i wasn't really necessarily a good writer and i wasn't somebody that had a 23 years of age when i first moved, moved out here i wasn't someone that really had the requisite life experience to write anything of substance right um so so really i just spent those years growing up becoming an adult um struggling you know living in a in a $550 a month studio apartment, always with at least one roommate, sometimes with two. Um, and, and just, you know, really pursuing my dream. Um, so that was five or, you know, that was five years of my life that, that to this day, I, I really greatly value. I'm glad I had that. And, and in retrospect, I'm grateful that I didn't have a lot of success too early, too easily when I was 23 years old. I'm not sure. I would have appreciated it nearly as much as, as I do now. And I think you burn out also. I think, you know, I talk about someone who, a guy was on the show who had a sitcom when he was 23, but they thought he was 35. <laughs> and he said, when you're 23 and, you know, and he just, he was in UCLA auditioning, right. what he wasn't supposed to. You, all of a sudden you have this money and you're 23 and you think, you know, I remember college, you know, going to spring break, like, oh, I have $600 and you live like a king. But if you're 23 yeah. and you're like Hollywood money, it's it it's a dangerous. Cycle. I can't imagine. I mean, I, I certainly you know I certainly found a way to blow through twenty five grand when I was twenty three, um, and you know and thought it would last forever. Uh, I, I can imagine if I was making kind of real Hollywood money at that time. Um, I, I mean, I always had a good head on my shoulders in terms of you know not getting coked up you know, right. and, and you know <laughs> blowing money that way. But uh, but but there's nothing wrong with spending three, four, five years of your twenties. Uh, struggling, having to live on 10, 12 grand a year, which I did, you know, try living on 10 grand a year in LA. I did, you know, for, for a couple of years. Um, and it, it hardens you in a good way, I think. And um, I'm, I'm really, really appreciative of those times. So then what was your first break into TV then? After you're, you're doing this, you're doing you know, the years, you're on 12,000, you're staying around, which they, a lot of people say that's also you know, it's staying in the game. Yeah. You know, it's a long, it's not going to be. Well, I never got into debt. 
yeah, that was the thing that always worked for me. And one thing I always try to tell people is try to avoid being in debt because being in debt eventually forces you to make decisions that you might not artistically otherwise make. So essentially, I lived off of what um, what I made tutoring and anything else I did. Um, but I but I never had to. I never at that point had to take a job that I didn't want to take, and I could always find the time. Uh, to write so so my 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 quote unquote big break in 1985 um i'd written a number of scripts and i was at that point i wasn't sure whether i wanted to be a comedy writer or a drama writer so i was writing comedy spec scripts this is nowadays most writers tend to write you know original scripts that are what help them get work uh back then in the 90s the you know the most popular thing to do was to write spec scripts of existing shows on tv so you know, so I wrote, you know, for comedies, I wrote a spec Cheers, spec News Radio, um, Seinfeld. And at that point, in early 1995, I'd written a spec Friends. Um, and there was um, um, there was somebody at, uh, uh, at MTM, a guy by the name of Michael Lansbury, uh, who was an exec there. And he had read my um, spec Friends and thought it was funny and thought it was good and, and brought me in for for a meeting and essentially was like how do you write like to write a pilot for us and so i was like i would like that very much sir (laughs) (laughs) Um, and uh and so all of a sudden i was getting paid to uh to write a, a pilot um for them and and unsurprisingly nothing ever happened with it but it did it did draw the attention of a few other people it drew the attention of some people at, at Reicher Entertainment at that point, um, Rob Keneally especially, who was running Reicher back then, and they said, well, how do you like to write a sitcom pilot for us? You know, we like this other one you did, how do you like to write one for us? So I so I wrote one there, uh, and that one actually got some attention, and Lifetime bought it, and, and it almost got made, but then it didn't get made. Um, but when that was over with, he, 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 um, he essentially was like... Uh, you know, um, I'm going to suggest to you as a writer to one of the shows we have, which was Nash Bridges. And so they put a couple of my scripts in front of Carlton Cuse and John Worth at Nash Bridges. And um, they liked it and had me in for a meeting, and I got hired for a staff job. So so that's when, you know, that's when the work started to happen for me, and you know, one script kind of led to another. Well, you did Nash Bridges, and you went to Angel? Yeah, I did three years of Nash, and my contract uh, was up, and um, they wanted me, Carlton and John wanted me to come back for a fourth season, and I really loved them, and it was um, it was really a great job in that they were hugely supportive, um, you know, it was close, to, you know, it was literally close to where I lived, <laughs> um, you know, it was a very easy job in that regard, I had you know, gotten used to the show. I knew the rhythms of the show and it was very tempting to stay, but I also felt like I was still a young writer that I had a lot to learn that I'd kind of learned everything I was going to learn, uh, on Nash bridges in those three years there. And I had an offer to go work for Joss Whedon on angel. Um, it was less guaranteed episodes. It was on the other side of town, which went, which meant an annoying commute there and back. <laughs> People in LA, um, you don't understand. In I LA, didn't that's... know that show all that well. It was a real risk in my mind to to take it because my wife and I had just had our first child. Um, but something in me told me that that I would learn things there that I hadn't learned at Nash, and so I, I took that job um, and spent a year there. And then how, now, okay, you're spending, you're writing these things. Now, how does it come to when you get sought out to create The Shield? Because did they offer you when you were there? Well, I, di- I didn't get sought out <laughs> to create The Shield. The uh, That that sitcom script I mentioned um, that, that got bought by Lifetime and almost got made there, um, one of the executives uh, at Lifetime who really liked the script, who I think was fighting for it to get made, even though it never did, she was married to a guy named Lou Wallach. And Lou was an executive at Fox TV Studios. And I was at um, some kind of lifetime party or something uh, at the time that the script was alive. And, and, and Lou saw me and introduced himself and said, you know, um, you know um, I'm aware of your script because my wife works over at Lifetime. Or I thought it was funny. Would you like to come talk to us about something? And I said, sure. This was sort of as my Nash Bridges days were sort of ending. And, um, and they hired me to write another sitcom pilot. 
Um, to make a long story short, we could never agree on what the premise for the pilot should be. Uh, and and they were always talking to different networks, like, what are you looking for? And they'd say, oh, we're looking for a college show. And they'd say, hey, Fox is looking for a college show. And, and I would... And I would spend the weekend trying to come up with my version of a funny comedy, a college show. And of course, nobody ever bought those things. And, and we'd gone through like 10 different ideas. And, and I think they were aware that if they didn't have me actually write something fairly soon, that they were going to have to pay me and they, they wouldn't get a script out of it. And so Lisa Berger, who was running the company then, sort of sat me down and was like, listen, we've tried a lot of things, but you know, listen, what would you really like to write? And it was the first time, like in eight months, that, that rather than me chasing somebody else's idea, I was being asked what would really interest me. And and I don't know why I did this. It was the craziest thing in the world because they'd hired me to write a sitcom, but I came back two weeks later with the idea for The Shield. Um, and I knew that it was going to be crazy, and I knew that, that what I saw in my mind that was different because it's you know it could just be seen as just another cop show, but I knew what was different was the tone. And so what I'd done was I'd written the first five pages of the pilot, and I said, "So I have this idea for the show. You know, this is this, and here's why it's going to be different." And I just handed Lou the pages, and I sat and sort of watched as he read them, and he read through them. He's like, "Oh, this is pretty good." And for some reason, they crazily let me write this drama rather than a sitcom, and. Um, when it was over, it was when I turned it in, it was just as my days at Nash were ending and my days on Angel were beginning. And so I just completely forgot about it and, you know, was just trying to be a good writer for Joss and David Greenwald and Tim Minear on Angel. And, um, and unbeknownst to me, Fox TV Studios sent that script to a couple places. And one of the places they sent it to was FX. Uh, at a time when FX was looking to launch themselves into original programming. And um, and so maybe five, six months after I turned that script in and had completely forgotten about it, I got a call saying that, you know, these two guys, Peter Ligori and Kevin Riley at FX, wanted to meet with me to talk about that script. What made you think, I mean, what made you think the cop show? Because you said you're doing all these sitcoms, are you just like, I'm just, I want to do something different? And what made you think the character is one of the first, you know, anti-heroes but you mm -hmm. you love Vic. i mean you love him but you know he's not a good guy i mean i right. mean that was very groundbreaking what made you decide to sit there and write that well comic? it was an evolution it would be a lie to say that i had everything that the shield became in my head when i first started writing it, it was you know certain things got got added along the way but yes i was trying to do sitcoms but i had just spent the previous three years working on a one-hour drama i'd be i'd gotten very familiar with that format that was a cop show, although a very different kind of cop show, sort of a throwback, you know, to those, you know, cop private detective shows in the 70s and 80s. Um, we would go on ride-alongs with cops in San Francisco, and I would see things that I thought were just fascinating, but of course were completely inappropriate for Nash Bridges. Right. You know, Nash was kind of a larger-than-life, straight-up hero show. There were all sorts of rules about um you know what nash could do right and couldn't do right and you know y you couldn't give him any flaws his only flaw i used to joke that we were allowed to write was he could never make it work out long term with whatever beautiful right. co-star he was screwing that week um and so after three years of writing that really the shield came about as me just wanting to get something else completely out of my system after writing a show that had these sort of strict rules and and the hero cop always had to win at the end, always, you know, could never make a mistake, uh, could never be wrong about who he thought did it. Um, I just wrote the script to kind of get that out of my system. And, and I thought, I thought, well, these fools at Fox TV studios are paying me to essentially write my next spec script that will help me get a job if and when Joss Whedon fires me off of Angel. Um, that's all I thought it was. At that time, the only network that was making shows like that were HBO. And at that time, HBO was producing all its dramas. So there really was no clear path to write a script that like this, which which was very in-your-face and, and pushed boundaries with language and content and everything. There was no expectation ever that it could get made. And it was only through the sheer luck and, and, and fate that, the people at FX were looking to change the dynamics of basic cable TV that, that my script fell on their desk at 
exactly the time they were looking for scripts like that. Did you think of it? I mean, I mean, I know when you write a project, you're never sure because you know you had uh, pilots that didn't get picked up and stuff like that. Did you ever think it would just become such a phenomenon, such a huge hit? I mean, when you wrote it, did you know, I mean, when you were writing it, when they said, let's go, did you know in your mind that this is going to be big? No, I thought it was good. I thought it was the best thing I'd ever written. Um, but I had zero faith in my ability to execute it because I'd never done anything like that before. I had zero faith in the market to appreciate something like it. And I had not all that much faith that anyone would ever know what channel FX was even on. Um, but they were willing to spend money to make this pilot uh, and once again, I was just thinking, well, if I make something really good, maybe it will help me get a job later on. Because I never for a second thought it would work. And then when we made the pilot and I thought, wow, this turned out pretty well, in, in large part due to the cast. Because um, all pilots, I think, succeed or fail much more on the cast than almost anything else. Um, then and then they picked up a series i was like okay well no one's ever going to watch fx and <laughs> no one's ever going to see this <laughs> but now they're going to let me make 12 more <laughs> so maybe if i can make one really good season of television even though no one will ever really see it you know maybe that can be my calling card to be able to develop new shows you know maybe i can sort of because back then it was uh, there was a pecking order in terms of you worked your way up and staffs you know, so I'd been on staff for four years, but it was much more common that you'd be on staff for seven, eight, nine years before you'd kind of be trusted and allowed to create a TV show. And and so I thought, well, if I make something good, maybe that just sort of accelerates my process to make the next show. Um, and I think it was that attitude that helped make The Shield good. Uh, there was no attempt to make it palatable for an audience because I just assumed there would be no audience. <laughs> So there was there was no attempt, no thinking of, well, do we want to soften this because, you know, to make it more comfortable for people. And I think it was that kind of unflinching um, honesty, integrity that we strove for, me and the other writers and the actors and the director, that, that I think is what ultimately struck a chord with people. Uh, it did seem different than other shows when it came out. It certainly owes a huge debt to The Sopranos. I never would have written that script if the Sopranos hadn't been on, if I hadn't seen uh, what David Chase had done with Tony Soprano as a character, someone who on the surface does a lot of really awful things, and and yet you kind of you kind of like him and you kind of root for him. Um, you don't want him to get caught and get busted. You want him to pull one over on you know the uh, the other wise guy in the neighboring territory that he's at war with. Um, you know, so I, I, it can't go without being said that, that the Sopranos, um, and to a lesser degree, Oz, Oz was another show on HBO that I really liked Tom Fontana's show, you know, following these really kind of despicable characters in prison and, and, um, you know, those two shows really opened my eyes and, and, you know, led to me trying something, uh, with the shield. But I, I, I was more shocked than almost anyone that, that it quote unquote worked. Yeah, so after the first season, you do the 12. Now, when do you find out? I mean, I just said, it, it seems like you going into this, you're like, I'm going to make a good product, but I'm not sure if it's going to get picked up. When do you know it gets picked up for the second season? Well, the premiere opened with, by cable numbers standards, then really big numbers. I mean, it set a record with its premiere um, for viewers. And so pretty quickly I knew, oh, wait a second, this isn't going to go away. Um, I had a, <laughs> I had a really strange experience. We were still making the show and I was still editing one of the last few episodes, um, when I got the news. But what was weird is I was very, very close to my grandmother, my mother's mother, and, and she had been sick for a while. Um, and I'd been back in Rockford, um, visiting her the previous August and literally this is the strangest thing, but literally I was in the car in the parking lot of the hospital, and I knew there was a good chance as I was about to enter the hospital that this was probably going to be the last time I was ever going to see her because after that visit, I was going back to California. Um, you know, I knew she was sick and didn't know how much time she had, and so I was kind of stealing myself in my car to, like, do that last visit. And as I'm sitting there in the car, my phone rings, 
and it's Kevin Riley going, "Hey, we're picking up your pilot. We're making a series. Congratulations!" Like super. And I'm like, "Oh, uh, thanks." Uh, you know, like like he like he was just shocked that like I wasn't more excited, <laughs> but I was in this mindset about seeing my grandmother. So that's the backstory for this. So so cut to Mar. It was March or April. Um. I'm woken up in the morning with a call that my grandmother has passed away. And, um, you know, and she really made a lot of things possible for me in my life. I was super, super close to her. And, and so once again, I was like, oh, God. And so it's like, okay, so now I'm making plans. I'm going to fly back to Illinois to sort of do this. But I've got to try to finish cutting this one episode before I go. So now I, uh, you know, so now I go into the S.H.I.E.L.D. offices. And, you know, I'm not doing all that well. And, and I'm... Uh, in there just just trying to get through the day just trying to get through cutting this episode so that i can get on a plane and kind of concentrate you know on my family and my grandmother when the phone rings and it's kevin riley hey congratulations <laughs> we're picking up the shield officially for season two and i'm like oh thanks uh, <laughs> um <laughs> you know it just was and, and at that time i didn't the first time I didn't tell him, oh, I'm sitting in the parking lot, but the second time, obviously I'm very excited, Kevin. Just, my grandmother just passed away. I'm, yeah, but, but but I always found it so odd that that those two pieces of news were sort of bookended by these things uh, around my grandmother. So I found out, you know, during during this um, you know very sad time for me that the show um, you know was picked up. Although by that point, everyone expected you know you're not gonna launch a new thing get the reviews they got for that show get the ratings and and not do it but you know but i'm always somebody that just i never assume something's going to happen until it actually happens so it was nice to get the official word now as a writer and as, as your first time creating a show yeah. now that you picked up the second season what's going through your mind because are you thinking okay i have to get a story going but then you're thinking I want a story that will go maybe to the third season. I mean, how do you attack that? Yeah, that's where the first time that I was kind of forced to sort of think of the show long term because I, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about future seasons when we made season one because I thought season one would be all we would ever do because nobody would watch it. So now in success, you're kind of like, okay, well, now this is tricky because you want to, you know, people are used to seeing the characters really propelled forward. They're seeing situations and characters really change and the basis of tv especially back then was always sort of end up in a similar place to where you started so that the show can go on as long as you can and um and there were certain shows that that had proper endings but the vast majority of shows even successful ones just kind of ran for as long as they could run and then one day they'd be canceled and and there was never really any proper wrap-up to the show and now all of a sudden you're thinking okay well I certainly have to assume at least a season three and season four as we sit down to make season two. So you can't you can't progress the characters so far that there's nothing left to tell after that. And yet the audience is expecting you to, you know, have something to say that's, uh, you know, on an equal level of as season one. And, and that was by far the hardest period in my professional life um, transitioning from season one to season two because all of a sudden, a expectations are so high, and now you're a huge asset to this network, and you know, and you can't help but think, oh, there's lots of people whose like careers are kind of riding on the success of the show now and keeping it going. Uh, they kind of rushed us back a little bit. Um, they understandably wanted the show back on the air as quickly as possible. So it was like the classic case of the band that has a, you know, big hit first album. And then the record company makes them get back in the studio, like right away for a second album. It's, you know, I, I didn't have as much going into it in terms of ideas. And, and yet I had very high standards for what I wanted the show to be. And so the result was a lot of really late nights, a lot of really long hours, a lot of trying things, throwing out, trying things, throwing out. A lot of, you know, scripts turned in, you know, literally hours before prep would begin on them. And then, you know, rewriting them, you know, constantly. You know, I, I, I remember just sort of standing in my shower one day near the end of it and just kind of like almost collapsing and breaking down. It was just all like way too much. <laughs> but But we got through it and then subsequent seasons ended up being easier than that but the second season was definitely harder than the first season 
Now, when did you know that the shit was going to end? Uh, I, w- around season four, it became really, really important to me that it was less about when the shield would end than making sure that, that I would know when the shield was end and could prepare for it and could write an ending for the show. So it was around the end of season four, uh, Kevin Riley had left F- FX to take over NBC and John Landgraf, who's still running FX now, was hired to replace him. And and so you have a new guy in charge. What was great, John had never seen The Shield when he first uh, started having discussions about taking the FX job. And then he started watching it, and he and his wife became big fans, um, which was super nice. So it wasn't a case where he came in and, and wanted to crap all over you know somebody else's shows. He was really, really super supportive. And I began, began having conversations with him very soon about, you know, this is the kind of show, especially as FX's first drama, because at this point they also had Nip Tuck and Rescue Me, so they were becoming this full-fledged network. I, I was making the case it was really important that that they allow us to build an ending to this show. Um, and neither of us knew exactly when that would come, but we agreed that we would continue to talk about it and that it was probably better to get out a little too early than a little too late. And so when we were making season five, um, I thought for a little bit that maybe season six would be the last season. Um, and I mentioned that to John said, you know, you know, let me see where season five goes here. Now season five ended up being one of our best, if not our best seasons. And it did sort of creatively reinvigorate me. And there were some big plot things that really launched us. And, and then as I started talking about season six, I said, I don't think I'm going to be able to wrap things up in season six. What if we you know, were to say season seven is the end? And I know that going in. And he said that was fine. That was great. So essentially I had 23 episodes, the 10 episodes that ended, you know, that ended sort of season six and the 13 episodes that comprised season seven. And there's 23 episodes to build towards a conclusion and an ending. How is it though, just to, I mean, to get rid of your getting your, it's your baby, right. and to sit there and get rid of the, you know, you have to do something with the character. Do you feel pressure on? Because so many times people people forget that a show's great for seven seasons, but if if people aren't happy with the end, then they the go, finale. hey, what this this sucks. It's like, well, you know what? Guess what? You love the show for seven years. I mean, you can't right. top thing. I mean, did you feel a lot of pressure when you had to write? The I end? did, and but it was mostly pressure on myself. Um, because I said, I, I, this was my baby. I loved it. I wanted to end it as properly as I could. Um, so one of the things I did, I went back and I watched a lot of series finales, um, both for sitcoms and for dramas and tried to sort of think about which ones went right and which ones went wrong and why. And one of the things that I came to believe was that a lot of times, the shows I thought tried to go too big on their finales. They almost became they became something different than the show really was. I would say Seinfeld is the best example of that. You know, the Seinfeld finale doesn't really bear that close resemblance to most Seinfeld episodes. Um, and I thought the best finales were the ones that were sort of logical conclusions to what had come before, and that felt like episodes of those shows. They didn't try to change the formula all that much. And so that was something that I tried to do, and and um, um, you know, listen, I'm, I'm I'm the credited writer on the finale, but it should be noted that that I definitely got some scene help from uh, from other writers on the show. We were on deadline, and so I, I wrote the majority of that script, but you know, but Chick Ugly and Kurt Sutter and Scott Rosenbaum and some other people, Adam Fierro, they all kind of contributed um, to that episode and that script. Um, but it was a case where. Where I was very worried, but but having such a a lead and a head start on it, we had really buttoned down the story so well that that it kind of made it a little idiot proof. Um, I think the story worked really really well that we came up with. So at that point, we knew the characters so well; it was just kind of filling in the dialogue blanks. Um, really, the few episodes before the finale were kind of harder than the finale. Um, even though people remember the finale really well, and, and people tend to regard it pretty pretty well. So what's it like when it's finally it's over? I mean, you just, you just sit there and sit back and go, 
I missed this, or man, that's a relief. Well, or- I had just gone on strike as we were filming the um, as we were filming the last episode. That's when the Writers Guild strike started, and I was a member of the negotiating committee uh, on the Writers Guild at the time, so I was very involved in the politics and the negotiation. Um, so my focus was pulled a little bit. I wasn't able to completely 100% focus on the ending of it all, which was strange. And then when the strike ended 100 days later, yeah, FX was very good about it. They you know, they could have had somebody else edit the final episodes, um, but essentially they just sort of put them in a box and waited for the strike to end. And then when the strike ended, they let me go back and start um, editing the episodes. And that was strange because now I'm going back to a building that, um, you know, our offices had closed down. So now I'm editing in, in a building in rooms I'd never been in before. Um, and the production's done and the actors have all moved on. It's really depressing for a showrunner to end a show because there's something big and uh, majestic and celebratory about on set on the final day of shooting having this big thing. Except you still have like another month and a month right. and a half of work still to go. <laughs> and slowly, one by one, everybody on the show disappears. First, it's the um, you know first it's the actors and the crew. Actually, first it's the writers. The writer, you know, the once the scripts are all written, the writers kind of disappear. Then it's the actors and the crew, and and filming ends, and they disappear. And then you're editing, and when you finish editing, the editors disappear. Um, but then you're still giving music notes, and you're doing ADR stuff, and you know. But then your composer finishes his job, and they disappear. Um, and then one day you're just kind of traveling to a building on the, on Sunset Boulevard to kind of watch the final mix and give little tiny little notes on you know on the sound of the final episode. And it's a very anticlimactic way to end your run right. as a showrunner on the show. It's it's kind of depressing that way. Um, and I always found the ends of seasons to be oddly anticlimactic and 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 depressing from my perspective. Now, what was great was eventually those episodes aired and, and, and people seemed to really like the last season and, and specifically the last two episodes, I, I think, are, are very impactful and, and closed out the series in, in a great way. And so when people actually started watching them, that's when I was able to kind of, you know, feel, um, you know, glad and appreciative uh, of the whole experience and and listen the entire time I, I said this to my wife and my wife was an actress on the show you know I, I said from the beginning of season one I was like it's never going to be better than this do you know I, mean? I was I, I wasn't one of these people who had something great and didn't realize it and it wasn't until five years later that I looked back oh I wish I'd appreciate it I completely and utterly 100% appreciated the shield experience knew it might be the best thing that I would ever work on in my career, which was a little depressing because I was still young. Right. <laughs> um, that was going to be hard to surpass the impact that that had. Um, you know, the people who worked on the show were friends of mine, literally friends of mine before the show were actors on the show. Jay Carnes and you know, who played Dutch and Dave Snell who played Ronnie, they were best men in my wedding um, years before we made the shield. My wife was on the show. I, I was casting a lot of people I knew in my life. So it had this family feel, um, and it, it was very highly regarded, and, you know, the ratings were good, and, you know, there just wasn't there wasn't anything bad about it. And and I I knew, I knew in my gut that it was never going to get better than that, and, and it hasn't. Well, but, but I mean, the thing is, though, it was a great show. I mean, that must be, you know, for you, it must be great. Because I remember I would get the FX uh, East Coast feed. So yeah. I'd meet my friends for happy hour. And I'd go, I got to be home because I didn't have deep, deep <laughs> room. I, go, I got to be home by uh, by 7 because it was on, you know. Yeah. So they'd be like, well, come on. I can't. I got to go and see the shield. And I'd drive <laughs> home and I'd run upstairs and I'd put it on and I, I'd watch it every week. Uh, well, my, I appreciate that. My friends turned me on to it. And I had watched, actually, they gave me season two for Christmas. Right. So I watched season two before season, before season one. one. And then I had to go to the store for season one, the video store. Yeah. And then, no, this guy wouldn't return like the last. It was like special things in like two episodes. And the guy had it out for like three weeks. I'm thinking, can you call the guy? I want to see the damn ending. <laughs> now, I want to talk about your new show. Yes. Now, that premieres Friday, I believe? Yeah, the episodes is on Amazon Prime. And so all 10 episodes will magically appear on the Amazon Prime website on Friday, January 22nd. And it's Mad Dogs. It's called Mad Dogs, yes. Now, 
what did this show about? And I'm going to watch it because we have Amazon Prime. I told my girlfriend, I said, Joanne, I said, we're going to watch this. If you don't want to watch it, I, I'll watch it. Because, you know, the best thing about Amazon is like, you have a smart TV. So we have Amazon Prime. You just pop it on. It's, you know, it's, I've spent a lot of time thinking, um, you know, when, when Amazon picked the show up, I spent a lot of time thinking about how the viewing experience changes when you watch something on a streaming site like, like Amazon or Hulu or Netflix. And to have the instant access to the episodes, I think changes the way people view it. And as a result, I think, you know, might change the way that people like me do our jobs and the way that we write these episodes. Um, There is something, you know, this kind of show that I think is going to be really fun to watch a lot of episodes in a row on. We've tried to design it so that it's really tempting just to push play on the next episode when you when you finish um, one. But uh, basically, this show um, it's it's a quote unquote remake of a very successful British series, also called Mad Dogs, um, that was created by Chris Cole in the UK. Uh, and Chris and I have partnered together to do this version, so it, it contains a lot of. Um, you know, the, the, the brain and DNA that Chris brought to the original UK version to this. But essentially, the reason why we did it is uh, I'd, I'd gotten to know Chris as a writer because I'd seen Mad Dogs, the UK version, and really, really loved it and was just interested in what he might want to write next. And then and then um, Sony, the company I worked for, ended up buying the company that made the UK version of Mad Dogs. And, and they were like, hey, now we own the rights. Are you guys interested in doing an American version? And I said to Chris, well, are you interested in doing an American version? Because, you know, I thought that was pretty damn good, and I'm not in the business of sort of making lesser versions of, of good TV shows somewhere else. And, and he thought about it and came back and was like, you know, I think it's good too. I really loved it. But there were so many things that I wish could have gone a little bit differently and choices I made that where I would have made different choices. And I kind of would relish the opportunity to do a different version and be able to go off in a different direction. And so that got me really excited. And so the two of us have partnered on this. And basically the story of the show is there are four uh, buddies who are friends in college who are now in their 40s, and they all travel together down to Belize uh, to visit a fifth college buddy of theirs. These were the the five guys who were all close at the University of Illinois back uh, in the 90s. And... um, their friend has become very, very successful, very wealthy. He's got this amazing villa on the ocean in Belize, and he's kind of hosting them. He's paid for their tickets to come down, um, although that creates an interesting dynamic. You know, you used to be equal friends, and now some are more successful than others. And it turns out, you know, there's a real question of just because you were friends 20-some years ago in college, does that mean that you automatically have to be friends in your right. 40s? And so a lot of bitterness comes out, um, a lot of recriminations, um, a lot of memories come out, and it's all built around this friend who may or may not have gotten his money in very shady ways. And and, and very quickly, things go horribly, horribly um, awry for them. And, and what Chris always talked about that I loved was, he always says, these are every men. Um, you know, there's not a James Bond in this group. There's there's not a Jason Bourne in this group. And they find themselves in these horrific experiences that they have to try to extricate themselves from. Um, and really, this is a character show kind of disguised as a thriller, I guess, because there's a lot that we get into about what it's like to be a middle-aged man, um, especially when you've not lived up to the dreams that you had for yourself uh, in your 20s. Uh, Chris describes this show as a farce noir, which I think is a great term and a great way to describe the show. Um, I describe this as a show about the uselessness of the middle-aged American male. Um, And it was a really fun show to do. And we've got really amazing uh, actors, Um, you know, uh, Ben Chaplin and Steve Zahn and Romney Malco and Michael Imperioli and Billy Zane. Are the five friends? Who's the Who's the uh, rich one? Billy Zane. Okay, I can see that. Now that's per- yeah, I mean, that's totally like perfect casting. You see, you think, okay, someone's sort of shady, perfect cast. Because I looked at the cast and I was like, as I was telling my girlfriend Joanne, I'm like, check out this cast, and she's like, oh my god, and Roman, they're all they're all great actors. They're all great, um, and it was a really hard process to cast the show because you're not just looking for great actors, but you're really looking for people who believably would have been 
good friends 20 some years ago that they're contemporaries that you know you believe they were you know in the same class together in college um but you have to understand why they would have bonded then and why they're bonded in a different way now um and you know it just won't work if if you have four of these actors who are great and one who's mediocre you need all five to kind of really be able to step up and and act opposite each other and we got very very fortunate you know so much as i mentioned earlier so much of a show success really is dependent on the casting and and here i think we hit a home run with uh with these actors so it's been good we you know we launched in a few days um you know the reviews have been coming out we've gotten some really really stellar amazing reviews um you know, more will come out. I don't imagine they'll all be stellar because because it's a different kind of show. I don't think there's another show on TV like it. And so it won't be for everyone. Um, but then again, The Shield wasn't for everyone. Um, you know, my hope is that, that this is like a certain segment's favorite show. Right. Um, now, what's it like, though? I mean, just, as, you know, as you said, it's people are going to binge it. I mean, that's like anything. I watched Bloodlines on Netflix and I watched one then I said, I'd have to watch it. And that's the problem. When you binge watch, you sit there and then you go, I don't have to be up till uh, eight o'clock in the morning. I can watch one more. And yeah. you, and it's it's an addiction because then yes. you're sitting there, you're like, well, okay, there's 10. Okay, I can watch. And you know, I sit there and, and you watch three and then you're like, eh, I don't want to do the fourth one. Now, <laughs> what's it like when, as the, you know, with your as when it's your project that, when there is TV every week and you see social media, people will go, well, people ruin it usually on social media, like The Walking Dead right. and all that. You see the automatic feedback but when you create it. But for this one, it's all done now. Now, do you sit there and think, now that it's all done, you can't change anything? Like, you know, if you're doing a series and some in the middle of the road, you go, you know, we, we can take a turn this way. You can. Right. But for this, I mean, what's that like just to know it's all out there at once? Well, I would say randomly in my career uh, uh, for reasons beyond my control i've oftentimes made shows that were kind of done filming before the viewing public got to see them um the shield i think we were filming our last episode of season one when the first episode aired so once again we didn't have a chance for the audience to interact with the show and react and for us to react to that reaction obviously we could react to stuff between seasons when i made terriers at fx we filmed all those episodes before um people watched them which was a great show thank you so and much i think yeah. Fief, Fief Sutton wrote in that didn't he yeah he did yeah yeah Fief, yeah, yeah Fief, Fief was uh because that show really combined drama and comedy and and, and Fief, who for your listeners he was a guy who who ran cheers at he's one been point. on yeah he's, he's a great and guy. um you know amazing amazing career and um and actually, this, you know, if you got 30 seconds, you know, the, the contest that I won, that going back to the beginning of our conversation, the playwriting contest, best comedy play in the country, I won. Um, I found out that one of the people who had won it years before me, because they gave it away, they gave, the contest was a yearly, was Fief Sutton. And so I was encouraged to call Fief Sutton when I was 23 years old. Um, which I did, and I had about a half an hour conversation with him when he was running Cheers, which was my favorite show at that time, where he gave me some advice and was super nice. And so that was in 1990, and you cut to 2010, and Fief and I were working together right. on Terriers. So that's how things uh, come full circle. But this is the first time that I, I've had a show that's going to all stream at once. The pilot streamed. A version of the pilot streamed last January before it got picked up because Amazon does a thing where they release all their pilots for people to watch. We have made a few um, changes to that pilot, so if any of your listeners watch the original one, it's still, I think, worth watching the new revised pilot um, now. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how people react. You don't, you know, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing that on Saturday morning I'll wake up and not really know how the show did. Right. And, and, the metrics for success are very different. You know, if you have a show on FX, you know, they're going to try really hard to drive an audience to that premiere night, you know, because usually in TV, audiences decline from where you start. So you want to start at a high number and you hope that the decline is gentle enough that you settle in a place 
that's going to be successful. But if you, you know, like Terriers, we never really did get an audience to show up for that first night. And so it became impossible to kind of, you know, build an audience off of that. It was very difficult. Here, Amazon doesn't really care if people watch it that first Friday, if they watch it that weekend, if they watch it three weeks later. Um, they want people to eventually watch it. They want people to feel that their Amazon Prime um, subscription um, is, you know, valued higher because they enjoy these shows. Metrics, metrics for success are just different, and, and not all metrics are shared with us. You know, Amazon will have a lot of that data that they keep to themselves. So, so I don't know that I'll ever really know if the show was, you know, a failure, a mild success, a raging success. I mean, you'll have a sense of how much people are talking about it, you know, but, but, you know, you don't really know. <laughs> well, it, it's great though. Now we have a few minutes left. It's great that, you know, you can watch this stuff anywhere. Like when I used to fly back east a lot before my girlfriend moved out here, I would be in LAX when you could get half decent yeah. Wi-Fi and you could watch something on Netflix. Was you know? there ever half decent I Wi-Fi got, I, at LAX? I used, I used to watch. I the, must have missed that era, yeah, Steve. I, this is just like three years ago. I actually watched <laughs> the job like, with that show with Dennis Leary. Sure, yeah. And I had to watch a half hour show because I know it probably cut out after 15 right. minutes. But that's what's great now about all this. People can watch it anywhere. And that's like, you know, yes. I mean, true as a part of a show, you don't want people watching this on your phone because you don't get the full effect but it's great you'd rather they watch on their phone than not watch exactly it. but it's great <laughs> so i think you know, and with social media they should be out you'll probably hear right away yeah well hopefully yeah hopefully people will get to watch this on on big screens it's it's a really gorgeous show our our, our dp um did an amazing job you know we filmed the show in puerto rico we say it's belize but we filmed in puerto rico and, and puerto rico is just lush and gorgeous and you know, there was very little stage work done on the show. Everything was sort of out in the world, a lot of stuff in the jungle and on the ocean and, and, and everywhere. And, and we also filmed it in 4k and, uh, you know, all the stuff on Amazon at this point is filmed in 4k and, and I've seen this in 4k on a big screen and it just really looks amazing. So if people want to watch on their phone, that's fine, but hopefully they'll have an opportunity to, you know, to put it on their nice TVs. And, well, I, I have downstairs, I have a 50 inch TV and yeah. I'm, I'm going to watch it. And it's funny cause we always sit there, we, we tape a lot of stuff, but then it's like, she watches shows that I don't watch, you know, there's some shows and I, yeah. but I mean, I'm going to say, it, but I told her, I said last night, we're going to watch it. She goes, okay, I'll watch it. When I told her the cast, she's like, Oh, I'll watch it. Well, I, I hope she watched it. You know, one of the things, Chris Cole, who created it, one of the things they learned from the British series, because initially you think, okay, well, this is a show and all the main characters are men. There are there are important female characters that, that come in through the series, but we are following these, you know, these five guys. And so I know in the British series there was an expectation that that men would comprise most of the audience. But what they found was that there was a really rabid female audience for the UK version of the show. And when they dug deeper, what they found out was that the reason why women love that show so much was that these useless men that they saw on screen, they recognized as their boyfriends, their husbands, their brothers, their work bosses. And so I, I, I do think hopefully it'll be something your, your girlfriend does she like. She will. And that starts Friday. Friday. And now you tweet a lot. What's your Twitter? we got to wrap up. What's your Sean Twitter? Sean Ryan TV. Sean spelled S-H-A-W-N. And you're, you're, an active, you're an active Twitter. I, I Yeah, maybe a little less than I did a few years ago, but yes. And and um, trying to retweet nice reviews of the show i've seen so so follow him on twitter follow me on twitter it's at cooper talk that's at cooper talk i tweet all the time also go to my website coopertalk.net i have over 460 episodes up you can email me cooper at coopertalk.net i will get back to you if you have an android uh device go to the google play store and download the cooper talk app it's uh just type in one word cooper talk and it's fun you can listen on a, you can listen on the phone so you don't mind if you listen on the phone you don't want to watch tv on the phone but you can listen on the phone <laughs> also um i'm i haven't done stand-up in a while but uh sunday january 31st at seven o'clock at the flappers main room at the in downtown burbank i'll be opening up for hal Sparks. so come on out i'm only doing 10 minutes but as i said i haven't really been on stage much lately and they contacted me and said hey why don't you come down and do a set so i will and then the other thing is people don't forget my cookbook remember when i had my health problems and i got out of the hospital i had to change my diet completely so go to www.stopthesalt.com it's 120 easy to cook recipes for one 
don't worry. There's no pictures that intimidate you. There's not a long list of ingredients. If you don't have cumin, don't worry. There's no recipes with cumin. So you can get it there. You can get it at Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com. But if you get it through my website, StopTheSalt.com, not only will I sign it, but I will also make more money. So that always works. So, yeah, so keep listening to Cooper Talk. And do, if you have Amazon Prime, check out the show, Mad Dogs, this Friday. Watch two or three. And then tweet them and tell them what you think. So I'm Steve Cooper. Molly is hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next week.